times of war, soldiers will sometimes consider defecting. Battles on the front lines weaken even the strongest men. Fellow units suffer great loss. Fear causes one to doubt victory is even possible. Siding with the opposition looks more and more promising. And so some soldiers begin to waver in loyalty. Perhaps some quit fighting. They entertain what abandoning their cause in favor of the other side looks like. Imagine you are there. Imagine the pressures you'd feel with every enemy advance. Imagine the exhaustion. Imagine wanting to just quit and join the opposition. But then imagine receiving news from headquarters. The battle to determine the war has been fought and won by your captain. A few outlying battles remain, including the one you're fighting. But every blessing he promised will now come true for those loyal to his cause. Your labors, your sweat and blood, your friends' sacrifices, none of them happened in vain. All of a sudden, the opposition's promises are empty. Your courage is renewed. You find yourself compelled by this good news to keep fighting, to keep enduring. Hebrews is news from headquarters for the church. Some Jews had, been, had become Christians, but now they're wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And part of that is due to their own passivity. They're beginning to believe the opposition. And the other part is due to persecution. Enemies are doing awful things to persuade them to forsake Jesus. Imprisonment, mistreatment, plundering their property. And so they begin to question, why keep suffering? Wouldn't our old ways in Judaism be easier? Didn't God speak in the old covenant as well? Why bother with Jesus if it means so much sacrifice? But then they get a letter from headquarters. God the Holy Spirit has good news. Your captain, your king, he secured victory. The decisive battle was fought and won. More than that, he knows your needs. He fought the front lines himself. He sympathizes with you and rules to give you every grace you need. That's how this letter functions. It renews our confidence by announcing Jesus' greatness, Jesus' victory. Last time in Hebrews, the writer introduced a new section to encourage us in the fight. Chapters 5 to 10 explain why Jesus' priesthood is greater than that of Aaron, why Jesus' priesthood involved better promises, why Jesus' priesthood begins a better covenant. And that's really crucial for someone on the brink of abandoning Jesus for their old ways in Judaism. You can even hear the opposition talking, can't you? Jesus... How is Jesus better? How can he even offer a sacrifice for your sins? He's from Judah. He's not from the line of Aaron. 
He's not from Levi's tribe. And so in the face of the opposition, in the face of the temptations to revert, Hebrews develops Jesus' superior priesthood to encourage the church not to let go. To help the church see that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of our eternal salvation. The old priestly order was but a pointer to Jesus' superior work. Now, the first four verses here, they they outline uh, several characteristics of the high priest under the law. And then verses 5 to 10 connect Jesus with those characteristics only to show why Jesus' priesthood is so much greater. So let's look first at several characteristics of the high priest under the law. First, his appointment by God. His appointment by God. Verse 1 says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Both chosen and appointed are passive, uh, meaning the high priest was acted upon. He wasn't appointed by his own doing, but by someone else's doing, and that someone else then gets named in verse 4. It says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, any survey of Israel's history will turn up instances when some men took that office by political power. Hebrews is speaking ideally. Ideally, the way God set things up in the law was that God alone chose the high priest. And you can see this play out with Aaron, especially in the law. God chose Aaron and none of the rest. And some of the people challenged that, didn't they? They they tried to offer fire before the tent of meeting and the ground swallows them up. Others grumbled and complained about it. And what does God do? He has these 12 staffs from one from each tribe and he sets them in the tent of meeting. And Aaron's staff alone, it it blooms and blossoms. These almond blossoms come from his staff. It was a sign. God chose Aaron. The high priesthood was by divine appointment. You don't question God's appointment. Or terrible things happen. Another characteristic was the high priest's solidarity with the people. His solidarity with the people. Verse 1 says that he was chosen from among men, from among men, to act on behalf of men. In the Old Testament, the high priest represented the people before God. He stood before God on their behalf. But in order to represent them... He had to be one of them. Okay, verse 2 explains this even further. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. He had to treat their sins with utter seriousness. I mean, after all, he's, he's going into the presence of God to, to, to represent the people. Yet at the same time, he had to remember that he too shared their weakness. 
He too had his own sins to deal with. He too needed a sacrifice for sins. Now be careful not to read Jesus into the picture too quickly here. It may be true that Jesus deals with us gently. It may be true that Jesus shared in our natural weakness uh, the frailty of our humanity, uh, a body that gets tired, that, that feels sorrow, that experiences pain, that can suffer death. But it's not true that Jesus shares in any moral weakness. Already, chapter 4, verse 15, clarified that Jesus was like us in every way, only without sin. And verses 8 and 9 will also serve as a great contrast between Jesus and every other high priest who came before. Here, he's simply highlighting the priest's solidarity with the people, his compassion towards the people, and now he's making a few extra notes for, a, for that later contrast with Jesus. Before getting there, though, we need to see one further characteristic, the high priest's sacrifice for sins. The high priest's sacrifice for sins. Look at verse 1. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then again, verse 3. Because of this, that is because he himself was beset with weakness, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So once a year in Israel, the high priest uh, would, would enter the most holy place. He represented the people before God, and he did so to atone for the people's sins, his own included. Now, when you see the phrase, for sins, you need to think atonement for sins. Atonement. Atonement has to do with God resolving the sin problem. God is holy. His law is perfect. And the problem is that people break it. They sin. They're ignorant and wayward, as verse 2 puts it. Because God is holy, he can't overlook sin. Sin deserves death. That's the punishment. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. At the same time, God chooses to love sinners and bring them into his presence. But the only way they can enter his presence is by the death of another in their place. And this is where atonement and the the, the priesthood enters the picture. The high priest would offer the blood of bulls and goats to atone for the people's sin. They deserve to die. They're covenant breakers. But atonement had to do with inflicting the death penalty for sin on another in your place. It wasn't just about blood being spilt, but blood signifying the death of another in your place. This death substitutes for the death I deserve. That's the point. 
Every year on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices of the high priest taught the people about their need for atonement. And it also revealed the God who provides atonement. Now, some of you are jumping ahead already, and you're asking, wait a minute, I thought Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How did those sacrifices for sin back there, how did they atone for sin at all? And the answer is that they atoned for sin only by way of anticipation. Meaning they anticipated those sacrifices, anticipated the greater sacrifice of Jesus. They anticipated the work of a far greater high priest. And that's where he heads next. Appointed by God, solidarity with the people... Sacrifice for sins. Now, let's see how he develops each of these in relation to Christ's superior priesthood. You, see, you, you will see a pattern here. Uh, ben did this uh, a couple weeks ago with, with David. He showed us how G- David's kingship was similar to that of Jesus's, right? But then he showed us how Jesus' kingship was far greater. So they were alike in some ways, but far greater in other ways. And he's about to do the same thing now with the priesthood. So to begin, we see that Jesus was appointed by God as well. But he has a far greater kind of appointment. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest... So see the connection to verse 4 there. No one takes this honor for himself. Verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself. So Jesus didn't vie for his priestly position. Rather, verse 5 says, He was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now immediately we start to see a contrast. Jesus' priesthood must be of a different sort of a superior sort, because no high priest in Israel's history could ever boast of being God's son. He's quoting from Psalm 2, verse 7, and it's the second time we've seen it. We covered it first in more detail when we were in chapter 1, verse 5. But Psalm 2 basically describes God installing his Davidic king, his representative son. The nations rage, but God makes this awesome decree. He swears that his son would rule. His son would gain worldwide dominion. And this all pointed to Jesus. At the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God installed Jesus as the true king in David's line. He's the true representative son. In the fullest way possible, To see Jesus' rule is to see God himself. But get this. This same father who decreed his son's kingship also decreed his son's priesthood. And that's where verse 6 comes in. So the argument goes like this. 
Christ didn't appoint himself. The Father who said this in Psalm 2 did. How do we know? Because the Father also said this about the same person in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He brings these two psalms together. We start getting even more of a taste of how the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament. He brings these two psalms together. We'll spend more time in Psalm 110 when we get to chapter 7. In the meantime, go home and read Psalms 2 and Psalm 110 together and you'll find many similarities. Both speak about the Christ, uh, which is uh, why he uses the title in verse 5, Christ. So also Christ did not exalt Himself. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the role he fills. Christ means anointed one, especially God's anointed king. That's what Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are all about. Both anticipate a king in David's line. Both guarantee that God's king will have worldwide dominion. And this is key. Both include a word of decree. God swearing something to his anointed one. But it's in that decree that we also find something different, the difference between the two psalms. In Psalm 2, God decrees his son as forever king. In Psalm 110, God decrees his son as forever priest. In other words, the two psalms together reveal that God's anointed one, his Christ, would be a priest king. Which is exactly why Melchizedek comes into the picture. The the Jews during the second temple period who are trying to read the Old Testament and anticipate what's happening, they didn't get this. They kept thinking, a priestly person will come and a royal king will come. And it was always two different people. And the New Testament writers say, no, they're not two different people. They're both fulfilled in one person, Jesus. This is why Melchizedek comes into the picture. Again, chapter 7 will go into more detail. For now, suffice it to say that Melchizedek is a king that pops out of nowhere. In Genesis 14, Abraham had defeated several kings in battle. Melchizedek then shows up. He's the king of Salem. He brings out some bread and wine. He blesses Abraham... Abraham then offers him tithes, but what's interesting is that Genesis 14, 18 also says this about Melchizedek. He was priest of God Most High. So he's a king, and he's a priest. And chapter 7 of Hebrews will show why the priestly order of Melchizedek represents a superior priesthood than that of Aaron. In other words, yes, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Israel. I mean, wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Everybody's heresy monitors just went off. (laughs) He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. That's because he's of a superior priestly order. An order that's better than Levi's. 
More on that in chapter 7. Also, don't miss that verse 6 says you are a priest forever. In other words, there will be no end to Jesus' priesthood. He lives forever. So Christ was appointed by God, like Aaron. That's where they're similar. But he was appointed by God into a superior priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest king who reigns forever. He won't ever need a successor. He won't ever need another priest to come behind him and make another sacrifice. His was perfect. His was full. His was final. He is a priest forever. And that's where Christ's appointment is far greater. Now next we see Christ's solidarity with the people. His solidarity with the people, but once again we also see him accomplishing something far greater in that state. In that humble state that he took on. Verses 7 to 9 describe his path of obedience in the face of suffering. And I think we need to make a note here. Divine appointment does not mean an easy life. It does not mean a comfortable life. God's presence in your life. And anointing does not mean a comfortable life. Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is a remarkable sentence. And you won't sense the full weight of this sentence if you've forgotten what he already laid out in chapter 1. Although he created the world, he learned obedience. Although he's the radiance of God's glory, he learned obedience. Although he upholds the universe by the word of his power, he learned obedience. Although he's the eternal God, the one angels worship and serve, the person of the Son learned obedience through what he suffered. High priests had to act with humility towards the people. That was verse 2. But there's no greater display of humility than the one to whom belongs all our obedience becoming a man to learn obedience. As God the Son, he didn't need to learn anything. He knows all things perfectly. But choosing to become a man meant learning to obey within the limitations of a human body, including a human mind. Everything he learned in suffering, he learned by moment by moment, constant dependence on the Father through suffering. 
Now we must be careful, never did he suffer for what he did wrong. He was without sin. The learning has to do with everything the Father kept revealing to him in order to complete his mission. If there was ever a time we see this most clearly, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not the only time he prayed with loud cries and tears. But we do see them most pointedly in Gethsemane as he draws nearer and nearer to the cross. What does he pray in Mark 14, 36? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what will you will. And this, as his sweat becomes like drops of blood. That's an example of the son learning obedience through what he suffered. Not just the physical sufferings, but far greater, the cup of God's wrath stood before him. He would soon bear the weight of the world's sins. He would, he would cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would know that experience as a man and know it in its fullness And yet through that suffering, he learns what obedience requires of him in that moment. At all costs, as he learns, he submits. As he learns, he submits. And he remains faithful to the end. Other high priests had their own sins to deal with. Verse 3. But not Jesus. Jesus remains faithful. He never breaks under the pressure. And that's why chapter 7 will say that he didn't have to make an offering for his own sins. He didn't have any. The only offering he made was for our sins. And that's why verse 9 says that Jesus was made perfect. That doesn't mean Jesus was previously lacking something morally. The perfection in view has to do with Jesus' vocation, with him qualifying as our high priest. As a man, the son had to be tested. Whatever sufferings he endured throughout the whole of his life, those sufferings were uh, were the occasion for his obedience to be tested, to be proven. He had to experience what conforming to the Father's will is like moment by moment under the pressures of suffering and he did it to perfection. And that's why God hears his prayers. He delivered Jesus from death by resurrection. Yes, he went through death first. Even there, Jesus had to trust the Lord to raise him. He had to learn what it means to obey the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. He yields up his spirit. And in that moment, he's got to trust, you're going to raise me. And then the Father defeats death by resurrection. He vindicates Jesus, proving that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is qualified to be our great high priest. You can imagine... One of the Christians, you could sitting there with one of the Jews trying to get him to convince him that to come back to the other side. This would be a great point. This would be a great mic drop moment to be like, where are the other high priests in Levi's line? Are they alive? 
No, they're all dead. Jesus is alive. And the point was God vindicated him. He was the perfect one. Which leads us to the last connection here. Christ's sacrifice for sins. Like the other high priests, he makes a sacrifice for sins, but his sacrifice is far greater. The other high priests had to keep offering their sacrifices year after year. But Christ only had to offer his sacrifice once. He laid down his life at the cross. We deserved death. We were the covenant breakers. Not just physical death did we deserve. We deserved eternal death. And yet in mercy, God inflicted that death penalty we deserved on him. He is our true substitute. He provides our true atonement. And as a result, verse 9 says, he became. So all that that I just said is wrapped up in he became. Hebrews will later flesh that out. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And to this point in Hebrews, that salvation includes the purification of your sins, the defeat of the devil, the devil's power over your life, and the removal of God's wrath, and you having access to the presence of God. It's also an eternal salvation, meaning it's a salvation without an end in sight. You experience the blessings of it now and forevermore. Suffering cannot stop it. Persecution cannot deter it. Even the death of these bodies won't prevent us from experiencing it. As long as Jesus is alive, which is forever, his priestly role in heaven will benefit us and serve our joy in God's presence. Now the big question, do you believe that? Do you believe you have a superior high priest who became the source of your eternal salvation? A high priest who sympathizes with you in your weakness, who knows your frailty, who has felt the seeming absence of God, who made loud cries and tears, just like some of you probably made this week. Do you believe God installed him as high priest on your behalf to make atonement for you, to serve in resurrection power as your constant help? Do you believe that? And if so, then why these fears? Earlier this week, this, this week I, I, uh, I read from Psalm 112, and it says, The righteous is not afraid of bad news. The righteous person is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And I had to say, My heart isn't firm. I'm afraid of bad news. I'm afraid of losing more friends to cancer. I'm afraid of somebody else walking away from Jesus. Even on good days, I fear bad news. I borrow all kinds of troubles from tomorrow. I just run the tape reel out in my mind. The worst. 
Here's how this passage encouraged my endurance this week. As my great high priest, Jesus obeyed everywhere that my ungodly fear has kept me from obeying. We are saved by works, you know. Let me finish. They're just not our works. They're Jesus' works. As my great high priest, Jesus also made the sacrifice I needed to forgive all my ungodly fear and the sins that come as a result. As my great high priest, Jesus knows fear more than any other. He knows how fear and hardships can pull the will away from perseverance. But he says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He knows your temptations. He's able to strengthen you to overcome. As high priest, Jesus will not fail you today or tomorrow when you're 40 or 60 or 90 or when they finally bury you. His salvation is forever. His priesthood is forever. He stands as a representative before God forever. That's what we need to be preaching to ourselves every day. It's good news from headquarters, beloved. That needs to be our meditation throughout the day. Christ's superior priesthood renews our courage to persevere and not fear when the bad news comes. We don't have to fear the bad news because the good news holds out so much promise in our high priest. So don't entertain thoughts about abandoning Jesus' cause. He alone is the source of eternal salvation. Instead, Obey him. Obey him. Listen to verse 9 again. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you don't obey Jesus, he will not be your eternal salvation. He saves only those who follow him. Some of you might ask, I thought he saves us by faith alone. Yes, he most certainly does. But genuine faith isn't a faith that remains alone. Right? It produces obedience. If we say that he's king, then we must bow. If we confess him as Lord, then our cry has to become like his. Not my will, but yours be done. This is not obedience so that he becomes your high priest. This is, he's already my high priest. Why would I not obey him? He's too marvelous. He's too great. His work is perfect. His work, his worth is compelling Many of you are good examples for us to follow in obeying Jesus. I know that you'd also be the ones to say how sinful you really are. True enough. But the Lord's grace is at work in your life. Your obedience teaches us that Christ is worthy of all of our devotion. Your obedience helps us to join you on the front lines. 
your obedience displays that Jesus is a faithful high priest and that he strengthens his people in the midst of suffering. Have we not all witnessed this in Dale the last two weeks? Good night in the hospital typing out the devotion for Wednesday. He could barely get up. He made the communion bread for you. This man, we see this man submitting himself, not my will, but yours be done. And it pictures for us Jesus and how worthy he is. We should also remember that obedience will come with a, at a cost. It will involve suffering. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus this way. Obedience to Jesus puts a target on your back. Obedience means a life that's countercultural and will draw hatred from the world. Obedience will mean loving others when perhaps no love is given in return. We will exhaust ourselves for others, and many times nobody will recognize it. Many times there's no immediate reward, it seems. How are you going to make it and not give up? By drawing near to the throne of grace for help. You see, verses 1 to 10 serve the exhortation of chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest. Meaning he's explaining Jesus' priesthood even further so that you have all the more confidence to draw near for help. He opened the way for you to God. Not to draw near means we think very little of his great sacrifice. Not to draw near means we make a whole lot about our circumstances and very little about God's power and ability to help us in them. I don't know the exact problem that you're facing today. I don't know how you're suffering in the path of obedience. It looks different for each one of us. But I do know God's grace is sufficient to help you in it. And as high priest, Jesus has given you access to it. As high priest, Jesus meets you in your times of need, so draw near to him in prayer. Ask him for help. Seek his face with loud cries and tears. Our Father hears us. And then one last word. When you walk this path of obedience and encounter various sufferings, remember that you have a Savior who knows suffering. And he knows it in a far greater way than we could ever imagine. He knows the struggle of submitting to the Father's will in the face of trial and hardship and sorrow upon sorrow. One of the hardest things in the Christian life is learning to obey the Father in the face of suffering. It's learning how to say, not my will, But yours be done when all the pressures of life are crashing down on you. Isn't that one of the hardest things in the Christian life? Man, you guys are some sanctified people then. I didn't see a single head. (laughs) Isn't it hard? 
Yeah. When everything seems against you, when everything goes dark, when your spouse walks away, when your body keeps failing, when your kids won't listen, when you lose your job and can't find another one, when injustice prevails, when your husband keeps crushing your spirit, when your insides want to become your outsides and the doctors don't know why it's happening, and yet even in those moments we're called to submit to the Father's will, His will of patience, His will of gentle speech towards others, His will of mercy toward my enemies, His will of thanksgiving in all circumstances, and not reviling in return, His will of humble devotion to His plan, even if that plan involves more suffering and sorrow. We cry and sometimes we scream into our pillow at night, Father, I know all things are possible for you. Please grant me a job to support my family. Please save my son. Please restore my marriage. Please turn my husband. Please heal and strengthen this body. Please convert my persecutors. And then no answer comes. And perhaps some of those things aren't his will to do right away or maybe ever in your lifetime. Jesus, your great high priest, knows what it's like to walk through that. To say, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. And the cup isn't removed. In those moments, he learned to say, Not my will, but yours be done. More than personal escape from suffering, he wanted his father glorified and he wanted you to be happy in his father's presence. He understands what you're going through. He's perfectly suited to help you. He knows the grace that you need to persevere to the end. He will help you say with him in suffering, not my will, but yours be done. Give thanks for your great high priest, beloved. May he strengthen us now even as we take the supper together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.